0: think a lot about generative AI in the music context because it has huge ramifications for content creators for musicians, right? Yeah. Um, and all, it raises really interesting ethical and legal questions around authorship and outside of music we see that in, in other contexts. Any time it's sort of human creativity um, is coming up against generative AI, I think we're going to have some really big discussions and big challenges in the future.
1: So after I did research for my book, I am really not very optimistic for the near future. Um, I'm really hesitant um, to put on my data in online forms of all kinds, and, and I realize um, many people make me to do that. For example, conference registrations, hotels. So my data is nearly everywhere in the internet, and I, since I was, uh, spent a lot of time in the darknet. Um, I saw that. Sooner or later they will appear in the dark-net so they, because it's not possible to store them securely. So I'm not very optimistic and I think when it comes to research, we really have to come up with new solutions for social engineering and, and for security uh, in general, for, for human-centred
2: solutions. So, I mean, there's already a language barrier in many cases in these systems. You know, we're generally working in English, um, a lot of the scientific organizations are working in English, whereas um, a lot of people in rural communities will either, so in Kenya, for example, they'll be speaking Swahili and they might understand some English or they'll be speaking a very local language. And so I don't think that the, as far as I know, um, like for instance, ChatGPT, I don't think it's going to cope with those local languages. Right. Um, perhaps in the future it will, um, but then it's a case of um, cost benefit, I suppose, um, if you want to do something that complex for a very small group of people, then there has to be obviously a very good good reason for that. So I think um, if we assumed that everybody understood English, um, then there, could, there are definitely obvious applications for that. You know, you can, if you want to know what the conditions are going to be like in the coming season or the coming week, then you can ask in a more conversational way mm. um, or ask them to put it in terms that you can understand better. Mm. Um, so the, perhaps in the future, there are, um, applications for it but I think at the moment we're looking at uh, quite a long way down the line.
3: Right. Yeah, so I think for the design implications, the most practical way is we could uh, give this recommendations for the users or for different de- de- designers, developers who is are doing um, similar h- human AI systems is that you need to be really careful because the effect of having explanation can be subtle and can be really complex. It can have both a negative and positive impact, especially in the short run, because currently I think the user's mental model is not prepared for the system to all of a sudden make a decision for them and become smart. Right. But I think in terms of internal things, especially in a smart home context, I think what they should do is actually to make you care less. They should slowly and silently guess your preferences and do their job in a way that you don't care. You don't need to care them too much. It just requires so much deep customization. Requires It's like you're babysitting them. That's not the future we want. We want a future that we care almost nothing and they just, the system should do the right work for me.
2: That's a real really big problem at the moment in the climate services uh, research area is that the climate scientists are so disconnected from the people on the ground who are using this information to make re- very important decisions that they don't really understand um, their lives, how they use this information and the types of information they need. So um, I think that's where HCI can really help here is in establishing user needs and better understanding these.
4: Hi, I'm Mike Green, a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Welcome to Understanding Users. In this podcast series, I chat with digital experts from a variety of disciplines, including user research, UX and service design, development and product management. And there's even a founder or two. I talk to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way. And the challenges they face in designing and building digital products and services with users in mind. And while many of these conversations are recorded remotely, I'm also keen to get out into the wild and meet my guests face to face where possible. So, in some episodes, you'll hear me prowling the corridors of UX conferences in different parts of the globe to get the views of speakers and attendees alike. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So, sit back and enjoy. And now, a word from our sponsor. Oxford Insights are specialist researchers helping governments and public sector organisations around the world understand and harness technology for public good. From AI to data governance to business analysis, Oxford Insights take a clear, user centred approach, co designing projects with you to help define the problem, your approach to solving it, and what success looks like for you. Whether that's a new national strategy, a pilot programme, a network of like minded people from around the world, a media event, or a startup accelerator. Their recent clients include the UK government's Ministry of Justice, the United Nations Development Programme, the Government of Colombia, the International Development Research Centre, and the Development Bank of Latin America. Their AI Readiness Index, which they've run for the last five years, or the Human-Centered Design Index that they launched last year, both help countries understand where they stand relative to their peers and how and where to start improving their performance. With 15 years of experience, credibility and global exposure, the team at Oxford Insights is the key reference point for those seeking to deliver public innovation and bring future policy issues to the centre of government and the public sector today. To find out more about their work, visit OxfordInsights.com. What is generative artificial intelligence? What aspects of generative AI are academics at the cutting edge of research currently investigating? How can UX researchers and designers apply lessons from this research in their own work? And should we learn to love or fear AI? In the second of two episodes from the CHI 2023 Human-Computer Interaction Conference in Hamburg, I chat in person with five attendees about the events, their own research, and what the future holds for generative AI. There isn't possibly time to cover the vast range of great talks and sessions at KAI 2023, but I hope this will give you a flavor of what was on offer and what those who attended took away from the event. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode.
1: So um, my name is Eva Wolfangel, or in English Eva Wolfangel, which is much nicer. Um, I just gave a talk uh, at KAI conference about cybersecurity. so I'm a cybersecurity journalist or a freelance journalist writing about cybersecurity AI. Uh, The metaverse, of course, too. My name's Sophie Freeman. I'm a PhD
0: student from the University of Melbourne. I am doing research into the user experience of music recommendation on music streaming sites.
2: My name's Jake Rigby and I'm based at the University of Bristol in the Bristol Interaction Group. And I'm working on uh, the Down to Earth project, which is about delivering climate information through what we call climate services to different users in East Africa.
3: So I'm Kiwi and I'm a UX researcher at Signify, previously called Philips Lighting.
5: Yeah. Uh, hi, thank you for having me. My name is Torben Volkmann. Um, I'm a research assistant uh, from the university in Lübeck, uh, northern Germany. Um, I'm doing a lot of research in the area of participatory design.
1: Um, but recently cybersecurity is growing a lot. So this is what I'm talking or writing mostly about. But I really think that this community can help um, people to, to be more secure because the human factor is often...
4: Underestimated insecurity. Yeah, and it was an absolutely fascinating talk. It was the opening keynote this morning, and I, I, I made loads and loads of notes over. And- the, you know, some of the kind of examples you gave of uh, you know, the physical pen testing, where people are trying to get into organizations and they're paid to almost try and break in, if you like. That's an aspect of uh, well, certainly user experience design that obviously I don't come across in my work, but tell me more about that and some of the examples you kind of shared.
1: Yeah, so this was one thing of I, I, uh, research I did for my book, um, trying to find out what we can do against this kind of, yeah, it's social engineering, right? That These people, so they are pen testers, and of course criminals are doing the same, They try to access buildings, they're not allowed to access. And I mean, the easiest way to do this, and this is something I often do myself, is just to sneak in with another person. So someone is opening the door and you just run behind them. And of course, people are totally friendly normally and they let you in. Or if you carry some heavy books or something, they even open the door for you. Um, So that means this social engineering and especially physical um, social engineering is, is playing with our um, yeah, or your human condition, that we want to be nice and friendly and communicate to people. Um, and what cyber security or security always tells the people, well, you are not allowed to leave to let someone in, just don't do it, but it doesn't work. So this one example was a pen tester, um, she um, dressed up as a consultant, and tried to access a bank in Hamburg. She wasn't allowed to access, but this, this was a job to try. Um, and she just carried around uh, many things I didn't have um, hands-free to, to um, open a the door. Then there was a fingerprint sensor where she, um, of course her fingerprint wasn't scanned, so she wasn't able to go in. Um, and she told me well, this is a German bank. I did some research so Germans don't like if it's loud and noisy and if you if you rent and curse um, So she started renting and cursing it um, then finally a security guy came and told her well try the other finger and then she was screaming at him because she was hurt on one arm at least she pretended to do to be so Um, so she screamed at him and of course he didn't he he didn't feel well with that situation Um, and finally he just opened the thing for her because he he just wanted the situation to end and her being quiet again so this is how, how these things work
4: And in your talk, you were um, talking about kind of the the physical response and how that affects, you know, if people are stressed, it can affect their behavior and their... I suppose, critical reasoning in terms of threat uh, analysis and in terms of security, and that's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, um, so this is what I learned during my research. That So everything started with phishing emails, right? This is the classical social engineering thing that happens. You get an email and there is maybe malware attached to it, or you click a link and um, you have to, to write your, in your credentials or things like that, and, and criminals send these things to you. So they make you doing things uh, you don't want to do or are not supposed to do. Um, and one thing um, that they use most of the time is, is Emotions, so they put you under emotions, um, they threaten you, they make you frightened. So, I told the story about my test phishing email I received where I had missed a meeting in a company I was new and I wasn't sure, I, 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 I thought nobody will realize, but then I received this test phishing email, which of course I didn't know that it's a test phishing email. I said, uh, We missed you at our meeting, uh, please urgently review um, the, the, the document, the attached document, and give feedback. And, and I was stressed immediately and, and, and a bit anxious and thought, oh, now I really have problems. And I just clicked on the document, and this was then the test phishing email. And what I learned from a psychologist who is doing um, social, uh, who is doing security research too, is that in these situations, when there are emotions, we our critical thinking doesn't work properly anymore, or it's it's just so far in the background that we are not able to think critically and to 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 think, oh, this this might be. Um, for example, so we just click on it or we just do these things, so emotions are, yeah, I I don't want to say a problem, but it's and this is the whole thing I was talking about, right? It's not a problem, but it's a problem when it comes to social engineering, because we do things we don't want to do, Um, and security research often told me things like this, we are the problem, our nature is the problem, our emotions are the problem, and of course they're not, because it would be sad just to cut all these things off and to say, okay, I don't want to be emotional anymore. I don't want to be polite anymore. I don't want to open doors to people anymore. So this was the whole message of my talk, telling people, well, please find other solutions.
4: So what implications does this have for for digital designers, for designers, researchers in the the digital sphere in terms of creating security solutions and security systems to avoid these kind of issues that, that we as humans all encounter when we're stressed?
1: I mean I think most important is really talk to a psychologist try to find out about the human nature um, and don't try to tell people don't behave as people. I think this is the most important thing and, and then I mean there is it's still open there are so many open questions there's not not a final solution for all these things but um, telling people just please don't behave as people or you should just do it properly this is something that doesn't help right so yeah I think. Uh, talk to other disciplines is, is the first most important recommendation.
4: So if there was one thing you wanted the audience to take from your talk, what would it be?
1: Human nature is not the problem. And this is what security research often tells us. But no, human nature is fine. Um, please be aware of human nature and find solutions that take that into account.
4: Yeah. And is this your first time at
1: Kai? It's the second time. I was there when it was in Glasgow just as a visitor or as a journalist. So I enjoy CHI a lot because I really like the solutions these, these, this community comes up with because they do take humans into account, right, and our nature and everything. Um, and I think security research can can learn from these folks too, folks that too. I, I hope that happens, that there's more cooperation.
4: And are there any other talks or sessions that you've attended today that have particularly piqued your interests?
1: So I was at, at alt Kai right now, which is, uh, Sometimes funny or partly funny, partly just research that is not totally typical for the field. And I heard some some interesting thoughts about um, large language models and how to how to use them. Uh, to replace the human <laughs> as a, in, in, in the whole process of, of research. And of course, I, I mean, I think they don't take this seriously, or they don't mean this seriously, but it was totally interesting to see what AI did learn from training data from past HCI research and things like that.
4: What benefits or, you know, and equally what challenges does AI pose to cybersecurity security and, and, you know, being secure online? Is, will it make it yeah. easier to do so, or in your view, does it is it becoming harder? Because obviously, ChatGPT can create, as you I think as you mentioned in your talk, sort of spam yeah. emails and that kind yeah. of thing, which are very authentic.
1: I think it's both. So spam emails will be much more authentic in the future. It's much easier, or it's they scale right. You you don't need many people writing them, so it's. The whole process is scaled so it's easier for the criminals um, but on the other hand of course these models and and chatbots can help us too to be um to th- yeah to be critical right they can remind us to think critical they could maybe yeah that's another question they could check our emails and tell us oh please be careful this could be this and that but of course this is, this is what we already have partly, and these systems often create false positives, and this is why people don't trust them anymore. Right. So I have kind of some hope that AI is getting better in this, and that yeah, that, that it really helps to solve these things. So after I did research for my book, I am really not very optimistic for the near future. Um, I'm really hesitant um, to put on my data in online forms of all kinds, and and I realize um, many people make me to do that for example, conference registrations, hotels, so my data is nearly everywhere in the internet and I, since I was, uh, spent a lot of time in the darknet, um, I saw that sooner or later they will appear in the darknet, so because it's not possible to store them securely, so I'm not very optimistic and I think when it comes to research, we really have to come up with new solutions for social engineering and for security uh, in general, for, for human-centered solutions.
4: Tell me more about the research that you're doing and kind of how that impacts the end user. Um, so I'm looking at these very complex
2: scientific information services that originate with climate scientists and the natural sciences, but then thinking, well, how do they how do we then get that information to um, all sorts of different users? It can be you know mid-level government users who might have some understanding of science, it could be, community-level organizations who might have less of an understanding of the level of, of science that we're talking about. And it could be um, illiterate individual citizens who might be subsistence farmers, for example. Um, and so there are real challenges there in translating that information in the right way into something that they can understand and then act upon. And that's the, I think that's the key here. It's supposed to aid decision-making. And so through, through all these different users and these different interactions, there are many applications for human-computer interaction in that space.
4: And uh, can you give me some examples of particular user types and the, the, yeah, the sure. kind of uh, adaptations that you've had to make based on that and the research you found?
2: So uh, we're generally focusing on rural communities in, in East Africa as our end users, let's say. Um, so if we're thinking of farmers in Kenya, for example, um, these are people who might have limited access to technology, but they might have a smartphone. Right. Um, and when they do have smartphones, uh, um, they use them a lot, you know, their entire lives it seems they're often run on whatsapp so it could be you know speaking to friends speaking to community organizations um and so um the way we would deliver information there would be very different from um how we would do that for somebody in a in a a different user group who might be an educated office worker for example who might be working for an ngo in the region
4: and what challenges do the different contexts pose you in terms of kind of the, the what you're designing um, well, I think one of the main challenges
2: as a Western researcher right. based in the UK is accessing the different user communities. Right. Um, so, you know, if we want to speak to farmers in East Africa, well, you know, how do you go about that? Um, and so for us, we've been partnering with local uh, universities on, on the grant but also local um, research assistants who have been recruited through our partners right. to get us kind of into communities. So, you know, there is there's a protocol. So there might be a community leader who wants to know, you know, what are these people are doing in my community um, because there's a, it's very much more collective, collectivist than, right. than, than I am or, you know, we would
4: be in the UK. Um, and so... Um, what advice would you give to someone else attempting something similar or kind of carrying out research in a
2: similar yeah. area um definitely partner with local organizations especially if you are not part of that community from that country because you won't understand the culture um you won't understand the challenges they face you won't speak their language um and you know we don't want to do purely extractive research we want right. to get people on board as well um and you know give opportunities to the local uh, local institutions there as well. So like we've been partnering with the University of Nairobi um and other institutions in the in the region. Um, other good advice. Um, take uh, use participatory methods right. and um you know user-centered methods as we always do in HCI yep. um to really understand the context of use and the user yeah. needs because that's a real, really big problem at the moment in the climate services uh, research area is that the climate scientists are so disconnected from the people on the ground who are using this information to make r- very important decisions that they don't really understand um, their lives, how they use this information and the types of information they need. So um, I think that's where HCI can really help here is in establishing user needs and better understanding the user. It's just really come along in the past few months really, hasn't it, with ChatGPT etc being uh, released. So, I mean, there's already a language barrier in many cases in these systems. You know, we're generally working in English. Um, a lot of the scientific organisations are working in English, whereas um, a lot of people in rural communities will either, so in Kenya, for example, they'll be speaking Swahili, and they might understand some English, or they'll be speaking a very local language. And so I don't think that the, as far as I know, um, like, for instance, chat GPT, I don't think it's going to cope with those local languages. Right. Um, perhaps in the future it will. Um, but then it's a case of um, cost benefit, I suppose. Um, if you want to do something that complex for a very small group of people, then there has to be obviously a very good, good reason for that. So I think um, if we assumed that everybody understood English, um, then there, could, there are definitely obvious applications for that. You know, you can, if you want to know what the conditions are going to be like in the coming season or the coming week, then you can ask in a more conversational way Mm. Um, or ask them to put it in terms that you can understand better Mm. Um, so perhaps in the future there are um, applications for it but I think at the moment we're looking at uh, quite a long way down the line
4: right and what about Kai itself is this your first time at Kai Uh,
2: it's my second time at Kai I went in 2018 when it was in Montreal right Um, and I was presenting a poster there but this is the first
4: Kai I've been to where I've actually made a proper uh, presentation. And what, what did you want your, if there's one thing you wanted your audience to take away from your session, what would it be? Um, so my paper was about how there isn't much crossover between the climate
2: services research area and HCI. So I wanted to kind of, in a way it was a bit of a call to action to map out different areas where people could contribute. Um, so I hope that was the takeaway message in that there are, this is a, a very um, important area and we need the expertise of HCI people. And then there are these different areas where people can contribute. So hopefully they can take something from that. Um, and I always remember my PhD supervisor saying, um, it should be an advert for your paper, which right. it was. So I didn't really present any
4: numbers for the data or anything. I just tried to advertise my paper and then get people to read it. And you talked just now about the slight sort of disconnect between climate science and, and HCI. How do you see that? being resolved, if you like? Um,
2: Well, this is something I address in my paper, which I would uh, very much encourage people to read. Um, I think it has to start with um, funding collaborations, so getting together with people and writing grants together. Right. Because... um, A lot of the time, you know, maybe there'll be some climate science happening and then there'll be a very small amount of, well, what they would call user interaction, which we would probably laugh at. Right. Um, So it really, the HCI people really need to be involved from the very start um, to instill user-centered methods, not just, you know, throughout the entire process of everything that's done, um, not just the technology side of it. Um, So I think, yeah, it's very much about um, being there from the very start and kind of baking a user-centered methodology into into the
4: entire project.
3: Uh, I had two studies. The first one was ten participants. The second one was I think four hundred and fifty.
4: Right. Okay. Yeah. And the idea was uh, in the context of smart lighting, kind yeah. of the Philips Hue lighting,
3: yeah.
4: uh, different models of explanation, is that right? Uh,
3: yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, of course I would like to talk about a bit more about the study. So what happens is that, um, so I, we did uh, we designed two different studies. In the first study, it's more like a qualitative semi-structured interview. And the term participant is all from the Philips Hue beta community. It's an inner user community that's already familiar and kind of committed to Philips Hue brand. Right. Um, and in this, uh, interview we explored what's attitude and what do people think uh, of explanations so we provided three different scenarios and with three different explanation types so to put it in a very easy to understand way is we designed some kind of home dilemmas so we provide user as something uh, for example if the user's brushing brushing the teeth and the light all of a sudden just dimmed down and the user could be so confused like what is happening. And in this sense, we would like the system to explain to the user why I dim your lights down because the system doesn't want to bother uh, because when a new person enters a room, you don't want to blind the new person in the mornings. So the system is actually making a nice decision for you and not having any bugs.
4: And when you say explain, how does the system do that? Is that a text explanation or is the system like verbally explaining to you?
3: Uh, no. <laughs> so in this, in this way, we're actually based on the Philips Hue app, right. uh, the system. So we're going to have um, already embedded uh, notification. Right. And word, notification is a combination of uh, an icon, right. uh, which roughly t- tells you what is happening and the system status. Basically tells the system is still working. Right. And then one explanation, very short one. So we provide the users two different explanation types. One is we explain to them in a more personal touch, in a way that with uh, social presence. So I think it's called the hedonic aspect of right. explanation. Right. So we say, for example, we uh, we dim the lights down to provide not to uh, blinding the new person's presence. We're doing it for you, for your comfort. And we use the first pronoun, we. Right. Yeah, and for the other um, explanation, what we did is we just used a very efficient way, a very um, uh, efficient communication style focused on the informativeness, which means we just explained to the users the system, um, dim down the light for the new presence. So it's short, informative, and um, it's more lack of the, the, the social presence.
4: And what were the results, Kiwi, of your research?
3: Uh, So we actually have two different types of results. The first one, we compare the different explanations. And we find that um, I think it's unlike some of the other expectations, for example, for the smart assistants, for ChatGPT, or for like the home home voice assistant. People might um, expect them to communicate more nicely. In our research, we found people would expect their lighting system to be just informative, just efficient, informative, and um, just basically in an efficient way. Right. Yeah, and we also, uh, the other part that we do find, I think it's very interesting to talk about, is that we do find, um, based on the technology acceptance model, so we, de- we, we actually explore the relationship between different constructs uh, related to perceived control, perceived ease of use, perceived usefulness, and adoption intention. So what's interesting is that we do find, if users receive explanation of what the system is doing, they actually feel a little bit less in control. However, they still feel the system is easier to use.
4: That's fascinating. So if the system tells them why it's doing something... Yeah they feel kind of disempowered? Yeah, that,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. So Why do you think that is? So th- uh, we actually ex- explore a little bit more of why people think so. There might be two different explanations in this way. The first is, um, as, as when users quote, this, the system is patronizing. This means if the, they see explanation, they think, oh, I didn't know that you exist. I didn't know that you are spying on me. And you're pushing these decisions to me. And I now feel like you, Uh, you initiated my uh, perceived uh, uh, risk. So I feel like there's risk, uh, I feel like my privacy is being kind of uh, intruded.
4: That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and to what extent did that surprise you, or to what extent no, did you expect that when you no, started that? No, it absolutely
3: surprised me, because uh, our assumption is that, because I think that's very easy to understand, if you the system explained to you, you understand a bit more of the system, hence you are more controlled of the system. But this is actually an unexpect, unexpected finding for us. Yeah, and we also find that also might be, for example, the user get the... Um, the users might have different mind, uh, mindsets or the mental models of how the system works. If the system gives make decisions and they don't say anything, they might think the system is dumb.
1: Right. They, they think
3: there's just errors in the system that's working in a weird way. But if you actually uh, tells the, 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 the user, actually we're making these considerations for you because this and that, they think, "Oh, the system is smarter than I think. It's not right. what I expected. It's inconsistent of what I think you is. You are. So
4: so what implications does this have for design of such systems going forward?
3: Yeah. So I think for the design implications, the most practical way is we could uh, give this recommendations for the users or for different designers, developers who is doing similar human AI systems is that you need to be really careful because the effect of having explanation can be subtle and can be really complex. It can have both negative a negative and positive impact. especially in the short run because currently i think user's mental model is not prepared for the system to all of a sudden make a decision for them and become smart Right, right.
4: (laughs) kind of the internet of things more broadly Mm -hmm. what do designers and researchers need to think about when they're designing obviously this context is smart lighting but the internet Mm -hmm. of things has a much broader application obviously
3: yeah yeah Um, yeah. what, what would you say I mean uh, for me I would I would say I think the, 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 the implication is more like in the long run to um to 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 say we explore a little bit more. Um because because we, we generally in our in our mental system in our mindset we generally think the things should be this way or that way, but when we actually test it, we find like user is thinking something that we don't actually know. So I think in a broader in a broader perspective, I think it's more um, Just don't make assumptions. Or you always need to test the hypothesis. Like in this way, you didn't, we didn't even expect at all that, the, that giving explanation to users can make them think they'll take less control. So I think in this sense, that really surprises us. And and, and, and and again, I think we need to put more uh, cares and attention to these nuances in different systems. For example, I think people's expectations for a robot cleaner, for lighting, or for temperature control system at home. Is compl- completely different than a voice assistant. And we also see that, for example, if the um, voices, if you you, talk, you use really polite words to voice assistant, you say, could you do this for me? While if you robot cleaner bump into the wall, you don't feel anything, mm. right? So so it's it's really, I think human's mind when they're building models are really nuanced. So, so just put more effort and put more attention to these small things. Mm. Yeah.
4: And final question. Yeah. What does the future hold for the Internet of Things? Do you think?
3: Well, I have several beliefs <laughs> in my own defense. So first, as I think, what they call slow technology or calm technology. This part I I, I genuinely believe because the currently I think most of the uh, applications, for example, like TikTok or 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 e-commerce apps, what they want to do is they are trying to grab your attention as much as they can any kind of attention as long as you put to them, they are so happy about it and they want to make you addicted to the app. But I think in terms of internal things, especially in a smart home context, I think what they should do is actually to make you care less. They should slowly and silently guess your preferences and do their job in a way that you don't care, you don't need to care them too much. Mm. This is one of the trend. Um, I I deeply personally believe it uh, because I I would not expect all my because the carbon smart home systems just require so much deep customization, Requires it's like you're babysitting them. That's not the future we want. We want a future that we carry almost nothing and they just, the system should do the right work for me.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. So the talk was about, uh, again, user experience of recommendation on streaming sites, but particularly focusing on algorithm experience as a lens. So really trying to understand how users are relating to recommendations, and part of that was doing a design workshop to kind of imagine what a future or ideal music recommender might be like, which was really fun. So, the one of the, a couple of the key findings were that, so the nuances to the music listening experience, in particular the one that's most interesting to me was this notion of vibe. And this is this term that everybody used in all of the interviews and also in the workshops. And it could mean lots of different things. It could be a verb, like I'm vibing with something or I'm vibing with someone it could be a noun describing the music as particularly vibey but for me it was really interesting because it's a more kind of intimate and holistic way to look at music um, music recommendation but also user satisfaction with and how they understand the stuff that they're getting recommended so it's much more personal and intimate than perhaps what what they're currently getting on music streaming sites
4: and I was fascinated by the methodology used because it's more akin to the kind of work that I do in a, in a sort of you know, commercial setting yeah. in terms of uh, you know the, the semi-structured interviews I think you did and then the design workshop. Tell me more about that and how you run that.
0: Sure. Uh, so, yeah, semi-structured interviews with uh, 15 users and they were such amazing interviews. People spoke for so long. I think I had sort of 15 or 16 hours worth of interview transcripts. Um, and questions were really about their experiences of using music streaming, and but I really wanted to focus on their attitudes and their perceptions as well of the recommended content. So while we were doing the interviews and asking questions, I invited them to also show me on their devices, their um, streaming service that they were using, which was great useful because it was a prompt for them to help them to remember but also allowed them to look at a playlist or look at recommended content and actually tell me what their reactions were and their reactions were often very funny um, and they'd say like what the is this for me like what is this doing here you know so that was a really interesting technique and then the design workshop was also was great i invited the same participants back and we got to explore the same ideas or the themes from the first stage in a bit more depth uh, and that was that was a really fun thing to do too. And, and using the design workshop as a kind of a speculative design, so thinking about what it might be like in the future as a sort of critique on the current state of things.
4: And out of interest, how did you find those participants? Kind of, What was your recruitment process?
0: Sure. Um, so online, through the university as well, um, a little bit of snowballing. So I asked some people, once I'd had some interviews, I did ask if they knew anyone that would be interested. And the participants were mostly, I think, the age range was sort of 18 to 40. Uh, and they tended to be really interested in music, which is probably why they signed right. up to do the research. Right. Uh, but this also raised some interesting questions that came up during the review process, but also for me personally, that what, who's the expert? So they were really uh, keen music listeners or maybe they had like a, they were DJs or they might play an instrument. But they weren't necessarily like power users of the technology. So a lot of them didn't know where certain features were. So it raises interesting questions for me around expertise in the context for sure.
4: So what implications does this have for designers in this space in terms of those people, you know, design teams, research teams working on building, uh, you know, whether it be music streaming services or other related kind of algorithmic based uh, services?
0: Sure, I, I think I sort of cheekily say at the end of the um, session that it raises more questions than it answers, and I don't necessarily have the answers, but I think that attending to these nuances and to the algorithm experiences of individual users gives a more holistic picture of. Of what people are really looking for, but also how they're receiving those recommendations. So I think things like vibe and something I wasn't able to talk about in the in the uh, presentation yesterday was that the musical associations and the memories attached to music and how they're really important to people and really affect how they receive recommendations and and how we design for that. That's a big challenge, but I think that these are really interesting directions and and it's all about empowering users and allowing a little bit more control and a bit more feedback from them and. Yeah, I think that's the way forward. But lots of questions. Lots of up. questions. Yeah.
4: And I'm interested to know as well, kind of from a from a cultural, uh, national kind of context. Obviously, you are you're in you're based in Australia. You're doing yeah. research with Australian users. What's your sense of how your findings would translate kind of globally in terms of other types of music, other cultures, what the you know user representation would be?
0: That's a really interesting question and one that I um, briefly thought about, but a lot of the research is sort of si- around music, I should say, it's really siloed. There's a lot of geographic specific research. There's a particular concentration in Norway, which is really interesting too, and um, which makes sense also because you know, Spotify is from, um, from Sweden, and there's a lot of, in that part of the world, the Nordic countries, there's a lot of um, uptake of streaming in particular. But as far as Australian users go, that is a really tricky question. I feel like I don't know if I um, have the answer right now. I think I need to think about it a little bit more. Uh, I think that the Australian, or at least the Melbourne, it's a really um, specific place for music. Melbourne, the city, is, has a big connection to live music. We've had a lot of um, both public and government um, pressure to keep live music uh, um, alive, and I think that really affected the, the users that I interviewed. They were really um, connected to the musicians and groups that they really liked.
4: And what's your sense of where HCI as a discipline is going, if it's even possible to kind of answer that?
0: I guess I can only speak to the direction that I'm interested in, that I've been following, but I really think that there's a, I'm really interested in the push towards understanding users' um, emotions, research that has a lot more empathy, that's much more about, um, you know, users' mental health, users' emotion, users' um, attitudes and perceptions towards technology. Uh, I saw a really interesting talk today that was about um, attachment theory for uh, Algorithms, or in the Instagram algorithm, so I think there's some really interesting research that's really trying to get at a more sort of empathetic understanding of users, and that's something I'm personally really interested in.
4: And what about the challenges and and risks, if I can put it like that, that that uh, you know the, these developments place on us as researchers and also on users? Generative AI is yeah. used a lot, as kind of you know we're seeing a lot of that in talks. What are the risks that poses to to people building, designing, and kind of building services, and also to kind of users themselves?
0: Absolutely. I I think a lot about generative AI in the music context because it has huge ramifications for content creators for musicians, right? Um, And it raises really interesting ethical and legal questions around authorship and outside of music we see that in in other contexts. Any time it's sort of human creativity um, is coming up against generative AI, I think we're going to have some really big discussions and big challenges in the future. And I think it's going to be up to all of the stakeholders that you just mentioned, designers, um, researchers and users, to come up collaboratively with the answers to that, because it's pretty pressing.
5: I would say the most important thing we do there is uh, looking at power relations in, in participatory design. So when you, when you have a design activity, there's always the question, who decides what and when. And yeah, we did studies with older adults for, uh, for five years. Uh, when you're looking at uh, at designing this um, mostly the designers and the and the participants and in the end mostly the designers decide what what to do with with a workshop result you name it so um and what we want to do when we do participatory design is look at um how we could shift the power so that maybe the users um, could design and and uh, make decisions in in the design process and that's yeah, that's that's the one thing. And uh, the second thing we have to look at is um, when we do, when we do most UX design and research, it's mostly one directional. You know, uh, we as the researchers or we as maybe UX designers always ask the participants or the users, "How do you do that? How you do you Do you want to have that?" And then we and then we try to design things from that from that information, right? but uh, when we do participatory research or participatory design it's, it's always a mutual consent or it should be a mutual consent
4: tell me how do you think ux and design as a discipline is evolving what where do you see it
5: going yeah that's that's a great question actually learning learning from kai there were there were a lot of um lot of sessions and a lot of papers about um artificial intelligence and yeah i would say that's that's an area we have to we have to look at in the future even even in my and even my research even when we do active involving people we now have to look at or should look at how we maybe can also involve the Artificial intelligence in this in this co creation space and where maybe maybe this also shifts the power relations again between the designers and and the participants and that I would say is a is a very important uh, thing for the future.
4: That's interesting. I was go- I was going to ask you around about um AI because yeah, like you, there was so much. I was really struck by how much stuff there was about AI and generative AI at the conference, and you sort of touched on this. But I was going to ask you around the implications for. Designers, us as designers, researchers uh, of you know the implications of AI on uh, the work we do.
5: Yeah, there's yeah there's so there's so much to to explore. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I I'm, I studied computer science first, and, and when I when I studied computer science, they always said, yeah, AI won't come to this point in the next twenty to thirty years, and now we we were struck by it, and I think it was November October last year. And now we have to. Have to find out. Really, have to find out ways how to incorporate artificial intelligence into our work. <laughs> you have, maybe you have to distinguish be- between research and and designing in this in this area. I think research could be could be very enhanced by artificial in- intelligence because when we're writing text and when we, when we try to generate ideas, um, artificial intelligence is a very good way to mass produce new ideas in in the future. You know, there's a lot of optimism around
4: AI, but what what are the what are the challenges and I guess and what are the risks as well um, for for you know participatory designers? Let's say in, in you know the work you're doing.
1: Yeah,
5: I think uh, biases is the most uh, the most important thing or the most uh, the huge risk we we are gonna face or we're already facing. And there's so, there's so many yeah, anecdotes or stories out there um, when we're looking when we're looking at AI. I mean the the problem with or the the m- most important problem with AI IRs is that it's based on data sets from the past, right? But um the the data sets from the past or they they got problems w- with race, with with ethnics and maybe even with uh, with the feminine view of, of things. So when we when you now try to, to generate an AI generated image and you you try to um you try to generate an an image and have uh, women depicted it's almost every time sexualized right and that that's a problem so bias and the data set we have
4: and what advice would you give to someone um, wanting to move into or kind of adopt a participatory design approach
5: I would say when you try to adopt a participatory design approach is always starts with your with your mindset you have to you have to reflect at what what you want to do and how you want how you want to design also what's the goal you you want to try to pursue and also not try to look at your goals but also look at the goals the users have
4: thanks for listening to this episode of the understanding users and special thanks to my guests Ava wolfangel sophie freeman kiwi die jake rigby and torben falkman If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Thanks as well to our sponsor, Oxford Insights. Join me again next time when I'll be sharing some more insights from digital design professionals. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centred.